But I do know now, and when my story went into the national paper, 13 of the women contacted me and said that they'd been affected by him, they'd been in a relationship with him, and had been on fast response with the police, and one of those was actually a serving police officer. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. I'm going to jump straight back in where we left off last week. Again, listener discretion is advised. And so without further ado, here's part two of my important conversation with the incredible warrior, Zoe Dromfield. Things started to escalate. So from that time with the, with the ribs, he then, it was more obvious that he was unraveling. So for example, one afternoon... Well, I'd come back from work, pick the children up. At this point, I've I've got a, a babysitter now. I've got a childminder that, so I don't have to rely on him around the children. And I, you know, she was brilliant. So if I did have a meeting and I was going to be late, she was fine. So I was relying on him less and less because he'd been so aloof and not able to help. And then this one evening, he I'd made the children's dinner. I'd had dinner. He hadn't rang. hasn't wasn't around. Thought it's strange. That's not like him. And then he rang me, rang my mobile, and he said, oh, I'm just out having a drink with Becky. Becky was his hairdresser, and they were friends, and they used to, like, he used to go and get his hair cut, and they'd been out, like, they'd be in the pub and have a drink. I was like, just something about it, I thought, that doesn't ring true. And I'd met Becky quite a few times, and she's just, you know, a nice enough girl. So I messaged her on Facebook and went, oh, have you seen Jason today? And um, she was like, no, I haven't. I'm just about to go out with the girls. So I was like, immediately, he's just lied to me. And that's one thing that I was like, don't ever lie to me. There's no need to lie. There's no need to have any lies in anybody's life. Why? So then... You know, I was like, well, you, you're not with Becky because I've actually just spoken to her and you're, and she's out with her friends. Oh, well, I'm going to go and meet her now. Oh, oh, okay. Where are you going to meet her? I'm going to meet her. And then he named her the pub, which was in, in the town. And then I come off the phone. He sounded drunk. And I thought, oh, so he think, he said he's at, um, it's called, it was called the establishment uh, place in, in, in the city. I thought, right, I'm going to get the kids in the car, drive there. I'm going to see for myself whether he's in there. So, you know, I'm behaving like a bloody mad woman anyway, because it's just like, I just wanted to prove his lie. I've got the, I know he lied about Becky. And then he said that, and then he was saying he was in this pub. I don't believe him. I want to see for myself. So I got the kids in the car, drove there, locked the car, ran in the pub. No, he's not in there. Knew that he was not in the, in, in the pub. So I was furious. So then... These were the things that were happening and I was just getting more and more annoyed by his behaviour and just felt like it was history repeating itself because he was doing the exact same thing that Sophia's dad used to do, the disappearing, you know, the drinking. And it was just, it was exhausting, to be honest, because dad was still ill at this point, you know, he was still in hospital. I bet it was. But by the way, Zoe, it wasn't you acting like a mad woman. It was you acting like somebody who is being triggered mm. by someone's bad behaviour and yeah. 
you are challenging that behavior and he's gaslighting you. Yeah. And because it's happened previously, your intention is to prove that this is what's happening. That's mm. not the actions of a mad person. That's yeah. the actions of a sane person who's probably been told that they're mad because they're doing those things. Yeah. But actually, True. absolutely right yeah. that you should challenge that and you should ask questions about that. That's not madness. He was gaslighting you, lying to you. And that's not okay in a relationship. And it's like crazy making behaviour. You know, I was acting in a way that I wouldn't normally act, you know, like chicken, getting the kids in the car, going to drive into a pub to go and run in to see if he was actually there. If he was there. But is that sort of like something I would normally do rationally? But, you know, just infuriated by his behaviour and reacting to it. Of course, and most people would. You're in emotion and you're... But that's not madness. That's not mm. craziness. It's not you reacting in your normal way. Mm. But emotion is what gets in the way when we care about someone. Mm. So it's just being clear, because I think so often women are told they're crazy, they're mad, they're yeah. psychos, they're crackers, they're a nutter. Mm. You know, all this labelling that we get means that we then take on those labels and actually they're false labels. We may yeah. not be acting in the way that we would if we were going to go out to the shops without any emotion involved, but you are reacting to his behaviour. He's gaslighting you. Mm. This is abuse and you're challenging it. And in a sense, you want to be proven right because mm. that's why you're going there to mm. say this is this is what's happening. But of course, you now know with children in the car and it's not your finest moment mm. And you're not mad in taking those choices at that time. Mm. You're someone caught up in the emotion. Mm -hmm. So, again, he's doing things that were not part of the agreement when you first got together. And this mm. is a departure from the perfect guy who yeah. was so helpful, always taking the kids off, always doing things to help you out. Now, actually, he's doing the polar opposite. Yeah. And you're probably wondering how that happened, yeah. where that guy went, who's yeah. this guy, yeah. and trying to deal with it in the moment. Yeah, yeah. It's not easy. No, no. And this continued over months. And then it, and then it was the, the run-up to Christmas. That was just horrific because the whole when people are off work, it's a, you know, there's everybody out drinking. In the, so he was out and he'd have plenty of people to be drinking in the day with. And Christmas Day, he completely ruined because he would just Christmas Eve, like I normally spend Christmas Eve getting all the, the, um, the children's wrap, doing all my wrapping. So there's mountains of wrapping to do. And then, you know, the children were young. So I'd have the carrot for Rudolph and the mince pies and I'd be getting it all magical and the, you know, all the decorations out. And he was out drinking in the afternoon. And then, uh, my dad was coming for Christmas day because, he was, at that point, he'd then gone into like a sheltered housing where he gets support. So he could come out for the day for, for Christmas. So, But I didn't, my house at the time didn't have a way that my dad could get into it in a wheelchair because he was now in a wheelchair. So he was a physically able man before. And then, um, you know, I'd got all the kids' stuff ready, got them pyjamas on, bedtime, you put the sprinkles out for Rudolph, you know, it's all magical, Christmas Day. And then, you know, I'd open the wine, had a glass of wine, get the wrapping done. And then Jason came back and he carried on drinking. 
and drinking and drinking and and it and it got to quite late and I said look you know I'm gonna the kids will be up at six o'clock in the morning it's Christmas day you know <laughs> like they'll be up like can we open a present show? and so I went to bed shut my eyes about like an hour and he'd sat up all night drinking so when I went down on his own yeah so when I went downstairs I was like what uh, you know, the kids are up. Uh, I'm thinking, where's, what the hell? Yeah, hold on a minute, kids. Yeah, just hold on. So I'm having to manage, like, where's he got? What's, he's downstairs. I said, get, like, literally get up to the bedroom. This is Christmas Day. This is like the magical time where I, the children are going to see the presents. You're just, and you're sitting there drinking still. Um, and it is the most magical time for children. Yeah. And you being a mum, you're trying to, ensure that it's so magical for them and here he is i mean this is so selfish zoe it's so selfish because there's no thought for your children or 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 for you and what christmas day means for a family yeah so what happened zoe when you came downstairs and there he was you told him to go upstairs so the kids could come down yeah so told him to go upstairs so the kids could come down we could get on with the day i mean and so he just went up to bed um so we opened presents he just stayed upstairs and i just thought you know i'd gone up and said what really and he was like is there any more alcohol in the house i was like it's christmas day what on earth are you doing you know like why are you still drinking from the night before and um, my dad's coming for dinner like what the hell is going on so i was just furious and you know, I'm just. What did he still... say to that, by the way? Why did he say he was drinking like that? That's excessive. Yeah. Yeah. Did he Didn't... give any reason or? No. And to be honest, I wasn't sticking around for a reason because I was too mad. You know, I just thought this is this is it. You know, like I'm done. Uh, and, and that's the thing. You know, I, I kind of in my head at that point was like. That's it's a deal breaker. Like you've lied to me. I don't know how you know you've lied to me. Things just are not. This isn't working for me anymore. But it's like I'm not going to do this on Christmas Day. So I wasn't going to get into a discussion with him about what he was doing that day. I will deal with it after. I'm just going to make the day magical for my kids. And so obviously, you know, the children are young. They didn't notice anything. They didn't say anything. And then Dad arrived in a taxi. And I had to then, because he's in a wheelchair, I had to get a ramp. I could have done with some help. I could have done with his help, you know, getting the ramp out for my dad to get in the house, you know, because he's having to go over a door frame that's not really for a disabled access. And so that was all a struggle. And then, you know, dad come into the house and said, well, where's, where's Jason? I said, oh, well, I had to lie then. Because what am I going to say? Oh, he's been drinking all night and he's upstairs drunk in the bedroom. I mean, I can't tell my my poorly dad that that's going on because, A, I felt like an idiot and, B, my dad would think, what is my daughter doing with this fool, you know, that's doing this on Christmas Day? So I said, oh, he's got food poisoning. <sighs> you know, I was so pissed off that I had to lie to my dad. And so, and actually now thinking about the timeline of what what happened, the, the, the rib incident hadn't happened yet, actually, because Christmas Day happened and then the rib 
incident happened in between Christmas and New Year because it was that it was that point in between Christmas and New Year where it just was a complete disaster because the drinking and the, the no structure and like I was off work so he wouldn't like that there was no he didn't know where I was or what I was doing every minute of every day so he would he would either disappear or he would be on me like what are you doing where are you what's going on um so that and so and the reason I know that is because I remember New Year's Eve, the children always go to the, because I have the children Christmas Day and they've always gone to their father's. When they were younger, they used to go to their father's New Year's Eve. And so the children had gone New Year's Eve. We'd, uh, Jason had booked a hotel. And I remember the photo being taken because my ribs were still, I was still in so much pain with my ribs. I remember us uploading pictures because we ended up staying in a hotel in, in Birmingham and there was all these fireworks going off and we had a great room that you could see all the fireworks and you know remember posting the the drinks that we'd got in the room and and you just think but that photo my ribs are broken it looks like the perfect setting because I'm sat there with a champagne bottle but I'm actually wearing leggings because leggings and a t-shirt and then like a fur thing over the top yeah it might have looked okay and glamorous but I was wearing clothes that were loose fitting because I couldn't get dressed because my ribs were <laughs> I had so much pain so I just said to Jason after things after Christmas and New Year I just said I can't do this anymore you know I, I need you are you are literally like Sophia's dad like it's unraveling I your behavior around the children the drinking Christmas day you ruined the best day of the year for the children and so I I said to him I wanted him to stay away give me some space I mean hadn't officially moved in but he's had a few bits and bobs of mine I was like just take your stuff go and stay at your mum and dad's I need some space and he was fine with that conversation when we had that conversation he was he was like I totally understand I know that I'm being an ass I've completely treated you badly I shouldn't have been and so said all of the things that you know validating how I felt about his his behavior towards me at that point so I was like well good I'm glad that you understand you know go and then he just couldn't give me the space that I needed because I think at this point that space was me trying to end the relationship. But because I've not had the ability to set boundaries, and that's a massive problem, so I couldn't just go, no, that's it. You know, I'm trying to let him down gently. I'm trying to just ease him away from the family, from the situation. And that was not working because he was just constantly on the phone to me. Like, So we've gone back to work. I'd gone back to work, trying to get on with my work, and he's ringing me in the day like constantly ringing me, ringing me, texting me, what you're doing, I'm working, why are you, do you keep ringing me, right, that's it, stop ringing me altogether, so I, okay, it's over then, Jason, it's over, because you seriously, are, I'm not getting through to you, you said you were, I wanted, I said I wanted some space, you're not giving me space, in fact, it's worse, you know, you're just constantly on me, you know, you need to sort yourself out. There's something going on with you. You've got a problem of some description. And I remember sending in things about addiction. And because I just thought, what on earth is going on with you? You think you, you can drink all day and then be ringing me millions of times a day and then calling me drunk and like, what the hell is going on here? And he wasn't working at this time, was he? No, he wasn't working. So he'd lost his job before 
Christmas, a couple of months before Christmas. And he was started to do the, like buying and selling phones. And this is where the run up to that, he was like borrowing money off me as well. And that was kind of a, you know, he needed to buy the phones and then he would sell the phones and he would make a profit. Then he would give me my money back. So he was buying, borrowing large amounts of money from me, a few hundred pounds at a time. And just, you know, all of this, I'd got exasperated with it completely. So I, you know, and then the call in, I, I just said, look, I don't want to be in a relationship with you anymore. I just want to be left alone. You knew you're not getting it. And I've explained to you that you keep calling me when I'm telling you not to. And that's when he he switched because he then started to make threats and say, well, I'm coming home. And it it would infuriate me that he called it home because I think it's not your home. It's my home. You have never moved in and now you're behaving like this. I don't want you here. So you are not coming home. It's not your home. Where was he staying when he wasn't with you? Was he at his parents or somewhere yeah. else? Is that parents' his house? house? Yeah, at his parents. Uh, but he's clearly of. saying to you he wants to be in the relationship. He's yeah. trying to get you back, and this is his yeah. way of bombarding yeah. you with calls and being completely irrational about things. And he was sending me things, things like text messages that were like pages long, and then I just thought, what on earth is this? That looks like bloody song lyrics So copy and paste it put it into google and it was like a boys to men track i just thought what is he on about you know like that kind of shit doesn't work on me you know i was just like at this point i'd got so i was just like what seriously you know i don't know whether you whether he got me mixed up with somebody else because i just i I, he didn't behave like that at the beginning and i wasn't going to start accepting bloody song lyrics and think oh that's all fantastic you know it's just just bizarre behavior really erratic behavior you know um then he was stuck then he turned up at the you know he turned up at the house drunk banging on the door outside so I said I'm gonna call the police go away you know go away the children are in bed it's the middle of the week you're drunk and now you're banging my door called the police he left then another time, but this is it now, because now it's, I'm not in, in my mind, I'm not in a relationship with him. He is being a total arsehole and I can't live like this. I just want him to leave me alone. Leave me the goddamn hell alone. And so I called the police a number of times when he'd called me, turned up, threatened to turn up. And one time I called the police and this is where he had left me voicemails pretending to kill himself, saying, I'm going, then saying, baby, I'm sorry, I love you. I know I've been bad, sorry. Then saying, Zoe, I'm coming I'm coming home. If you don't open the door, I'm coming through the door. So I called the police and the police, two male officers arrived and I was, and they kind of walked into the kitchen and were like, oh, nice kitchen. I just thought that's a really weird thing to say when I'm calling you about my mental um ex and i played them the voicemails of him saying i'm going and baby i love you and they said well you know you need to get yourself a nice boyfriend don't you nudge nudge kind of like banter between the two of them i just i couldn't believe it i just thought what on earth what (laughs) you know terrible response 
And what's yeah. more, what a sexist response and what an yeah. inappropriate set of behaviours when yeah. you're calling because of his your ex's behaviour and you're scared he's going to come through the door or he's going to harm himself. Yeah. It's totally misjudging the situation. So what, what happened thereafter? So... Um... Then one, so I now I was because he was turning up outside the house. I was then dropped the dropped the children to the childminder or, or to school, and I was parking my car a few streets away because I worked from home, and obviously he knew this. So I started parking my car a few streets away and walking through the entry, so he didn't know I was home. Uh, but he'd still be banging the door. I'd moved from because I used to work in the kitchen. I'd moved my stuff from the kitchen and was working in the loft so I was like trying to hide the fact that I was at home and it just continued you know and like the police basically said that we hasn't really done anything so we can't really come and arrest him when he hasn't actually done anything yet so I just felt just so alone because I'm not also the person that would go and tell my friends you know people have said to me afterwards like why didn't you tell me because it's not really something that I do. You know, I wouldn't go and ask for help. And that's why I called the police. <laughs> yeah, I wanted yeah. the police to help me. That's their job, isn't it? Um, and so, and then one Saturday afternoon, I come back. I'd been out with Sophia, then Cameron was at his dad's. And I'd been out in the afternoon, walked into my house, and I've got, in the kitchen, I've got some full-length windows, and I could—I saw him in the garden, and it made me jump. I was startled by him being in the garden. My garden's all closed off; you can't get into my garden. So I was—I didn't know how he'd even got into the garden. He'd actually broken the gate. He'd actually smashed his way into the gate. I didn't know this until after. Um, what sort of time is this, though? Is this in the evening? Saturday or? afternoon. And so I screamed and then, like, ran through the house and I've got the phone. And I, the first thing I did was rang his dad. Because bearing in mind, you know, they knew what had gone on. And he said to me, call the police, Zoe. So I would put the phone down, called the police. And then he was smashing through the door. I could hear him smashing. I was saying to oh, the police, he's here. He's, he's, he's actually smashing. He's coming through the door. I can hear glass. He's obviously got in. And I... um I was upstairs in Sophia's bedroom and all of a sudden there was like a house storm and I was like trying to distract Sophia. I was like, oh, look at the house storms. And he came running up the stairs and then just fell on his knees. I just looked at him as if to say, and looked at Sophia as if to say, what on earth? My daughter's here. What, what on earth is possessing you to behave this way? And he just fell on his knees and started crying. And I said, the police are on their way. I've called the police. They are already coming, so you need to run. And he was like, really, really, are they coming? As if I was helping him with that information. And I said, yeah, Jason, you need to go. And he ran out the house. And then I watched and I could see the way that he ran up the street. And the police arrived a minute or so later. And I said, he's gone up that way. I've just seen him run up that way. And they went off. They said, okay, well, we'll be back to take a statement. Now my back... My side door that he'd smashed in was completely smashed. A UPVC door smashed to smithereens, like glass everywhere. And I'm there with Sophia. So, of course, at that point, I then have to call Sophia's dad to collect her because what I can't have 
hurt. What? I've got no family to help me. I've got no one to help me. I'm completely isolated on my own now with this incident. I'm going to have to call Sophia's dad, which he will revel in, which of course he did. And so he come picked up Sophia and I was literally just left there in the house with this smashed up, totally open to the elements door. And then um, I rang up my insurance company and said, you know, I've just had an incident at my house. My house, I don't know what to do because I started looking at how you deal with a broken door and you need to get it boarded up. And um, they said, well, you need to, uh, in order to go through the insurance, you'll need to press charges. I said, that's fine, I'll press charges. You know, at the end of the day, he's broke the door, so I'm pressing charges. And when the police came back to take my statement, they said, um, you know, do you do you want to press charges? You know, you don't. it's up to you what, what you want to do. I said, well, yeah, I have to press charges because otherwise I'm going to be, have to pay for the door. The insurance won't pay, pay for the door. I need to press charges. So, yes, I am. And I sat there that night with the door boarded up and just just cried. I just thought, what on earth is going on? You know, and he's he was arrested, but he was bailed and they let him out. And the next day, it just continued. Unbelievable. So he's left you, I mean, terrorised. You've got your little girl with you who's witnessing all of this. Yeah. And the police then come. Then you've got the drama of having the door being smashed and now you're in an insecure home which for any woman is frightening and then you're being saddled with the having to get it fixed and if you don't take one course of action you have to pay for that so everything is just stacked against you at that stage and although they arrest him he's bailed so the behavior then continues so it must feel like you're the one that's being punished in a sense that he can just carry on with this behavior so what happens when he continues I couldn't do anything about what was going on. So I, you know, he was kept on contacting me and he'd he'd messaged me saying, look, my dad's going to fix the door. I'm sorry. I just wanted to speak to you. You wouldn't speak to me. If you'd have just opened the door, Zoe, then, and the way that you acted when you saw me in the garden, it just made, you know, I I thought you wasn't going to talk to me. So I, I, you know, I, I broke the door and he continued the, the calling, but I'm furious at him, you know, because I want him to talk sense into him. But I also know that I can't rely on the police to do anything because he, the only time they arrived was when he'd already smashed the door in. Every time I've contacted them to say he's threatening to smash the door in, well, he hasn't done it. So until he does it, then we're not going to do anything. And so the constant contact just continued. And so, you know, I just, it's survival mode, isn't it? What, what? How can I change what I'm going through? How can I stop this from happening? Because the police, are, you know, and I don't, I didn't know how to deal with this kind of behaviour. I didn't know what's the best course of action for me. I didn't know. I had no idea. And I'm completely isolated at this point. I'm not talking to somebody about it, you know, and I tell my friends that the door's been smashed. It's embarrassing. You know, I'm mortified that I'm living through this hell. Why me? You know, and the fact he's saying that it's your fault, you know, effectively. Well, if you had yeah. just and if you reacted in that way in the garden and if you had just where all of it is about his behavior. And I can understand why that feels embarrassing, you know, why yeah. you wouldn't want to talk to others. But it's not your embarrassment or shame. And this is what happens for so many 
people who are victimized, they feel the shame and they feel embarrassed and they just want it to stop. And why would you be an expert on behavior that is completely irrational and is victimizing someone? Why would you be an expert on how to deal with that? That's what the police are there for, to deal with someone like him. And of course, we know that he was a very dangerous individual as well. We're not when when people see these lower level things happening. Why well, mm. I wanted you to describe it is because it might be seen as criminal damage, where he yeah. broke the door. But actually, when you're in that house and you're alone, or you've got your daughter with you, and you see a man in your garden who's mm. been causing you a lot of problems, and he's said he's going to smash through the door, and he does then smash through the door. You don't know what's going to happen next. So someone might say, "Oh, well, it's crime, as criminal damage, as if it's." No big deal, but it's a huge deal. It threatens your safety, your security, your peace of mind, and it burdens you with his behavior and an expense financially and the shame and the stigma and everything else that goes with that. It's horrific. Yeah, his response was that if I'd have just opened the door and all of that, and then I got the door. In fact, I went with his parents. His parents, I spoke to his parents and they and they said, well, come and choose the door that you want. So I went shopping with his parents for a new door. But then, and that's not, I wasn't with Jason. Jason was not there. That was them stepping in, we'll pay for the door. We don't want any more trouble. But I think that they also wanted me to drop the charges of criminal damage. But then Jason's still contacting me at this point, and I'm still... Look, I mean, at the end of the day, you've just gone one step further now. You've smashed my door. But what am I meant to do? Because he just wore me down. Like, I just had nowhere to go. I was backed into a corner. I literally, who am I going to tell? My poorly dad. Who am I going to tell? My friends who will just be like, I'll just, you know, get rid of him. I've got nowhere to turn. It's not. And this is the thing. It's like, you know. I was isolated totally and to top it off that because Sophia's dad now saw what had happened, this was then him abusing me going, well, what the hell is going on? You better get rid of him. Da, 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 da. What do you think I'm trying to do? You know, so I'm fighting that element as well. So I thought I'm going to talk sense into him. I'm going to talk sense into him. I'm going to have to go and meet him because otherwise he's just not going to stop. So I spoke to him on the phone and then I said, well, I want to, let's meet up. Okay, that's fine. Let's meet up. And I wanted to meet him somewhere that was public. And I thought I'll go to a local cafe bar that I know that I always know people in there. You know, I'll feel comfortable in there. I can talk to him and then talk sense into him. And so we met up, we had dinner, and as the afternoon went on, people started to arrive that I knew. And, like you know, Jason had been back to his kind of behaving in his normal manner, like I'm apologising for what had gone on, mortified that he'd done the door, couldn't believe that he'd done it, he was sorry, his dad's going to fix it, it's fine, you know, he's not he realizes his behavior is outrageous. You know, he's sorting himself out. He has been and got help. He's going to, he's got this job interview lined up with Jaguar. And so he's 
people started coming in that I knew and were like, oh, all right, Zoe, you know, talking to me. And I could see that Jason was getting aggravated by it. And he was like, look, you know, we're meant to be having a private conversation. People are coming over. Can we just go somewhere else, Zoe? Can we go back to yours? I was like, well, I don't really think that's a good idea considering you're on bail. You know, you shouldn't be, we shouldn't even be having this conversation, but I just need you to understand. And, you know, I was happy that he was trying to sort himself out. And I was happy that he was acting like the old Jason. And, you know, a part of me still, I had invested time in that relationship. And a part of me wanted that old Jason back. Yeah, I know he'd done all of those things, but it was... Still, I suppose it was me trying to make him change the way he was behaving by telling him, this isn't the way I want you to act, so please stop acting this way and we'll be fine. It will be fine. Things can change if you just prove to me that you can change and that this was just a blip. So he said he wanted to show me the emails that he'd got for this job interview lined up. And so in the end, you know, I ended up agreeing to go back to mine. Um, by this point I'd had a, a couple of glasses of wine and I, my car was outside. So he said, well, I'll drive your car back to yours. So I was like, okay. I didn't think, I just thought, you know, didn't think anything of it. I thought, we'll go back to mine. I'll continue the conversation with him. He was being fine. He will see the damage that he's done. He will understand the embarrassment and maybe the shame will stop him behaving this way. And so we went back to mine and, you know, I was talking to him about, you know, that what that this the stuff that he'd done. And then one of my friends called me and I didn't tell her that Jason was there because I didn't want her to know. I knew she'd question me and I, I didn't want to be in that situation where I was on the phone and him with him in the room. So I kind of got uh, I was just having a conversation as if he wasn't there and I'd been on the phone for quite a while and then he passed a note to me saying get off the phone Zoe so now I come off the phone uh, the reason I say that is because that was mentioned in court and that note was one of the exhibits I come off the phone and then um, I'd won a bottle of champagne at work believe it or not while I was going through all of this I'd, um and so I said, well, let's open that champagne. Look, you know, I'm glad that you understand that. And he was apologetic, sorry, and couldn't believe the door. And he... and so we had the bottle of wine. We drank the bottle of wine. And you know what? I thought I'd got through to him. I thought he, maybe he'll understand now. This isn't something that you can do and you can't behave this way. I said, you know, I'm going to go up to bed, but I don't. And, but I was still making it really clear to him, look, I'm not happy. We're not going to just be getting back together. And I think part of me still wanted that distance. I didn't want to be in a relationship, but I had no idea how to put the boundary up and just end it because it couldn't. He wouldn't leave me alone. So I couldn't just go leave me alone. He wasn't doing that. So I was having to find this plan B, you know. Um. Which a lot of women find themselves in that position. You know, if you go to the police, you ask them to help, but they're not helping. They bail mm. someone. You still have this person who's persistently contacting you. You still have to manage with the fallout of that. So oftentimes I do see 
lots of women in particular who will try and meet up, try and risk manage the situation, try and de-escalate it, try and keep things on an okay footing or okay grounds because then it becomes much more manageable. And that's perfectly understandable. And I think a lot of people judge as to why you would do that. Well, when you're in that situation, what's as a woman, what's your choice? You can't physically remove someone. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have the physicality. The physiology is against us. So you can't physically remove someone from being in your environment. Mm -hmm. And if they continue to call you, contact you, you know, most women do try and talk and rationalize and talk someone round and down and try and deal with it that way. And that Mm. shouldn't be a point of judgment. It's actually what we do in everyday life, conflict management, risk managed situations. And women have been doing this for centuries, trying to manage men's bad behavior. And and that's the point. If he wasn't behaving in that way, you wouldn't even be in this situation, Zoe, no. where you're having to talk, go and meet him and talk to mm. him and try and rationalise everything. And yeah. you're constantly gauging the temperature of him. And, OK, well, we can have another drink together and hopefully that will be the end of it. Yeah. But unfortunately, it wasn't the end of it because it was going to end his way because mm-hmm. of control issues. So what happened next? You go to bed. So I went to bed and then I left him downstairs, thought he would either leave, stay on the sofa. It wasn't unusual for me to leave him downstairs. And then the next thing I remember is being woken by him asking me to lend him money. And so my instant reaction was, no, what do you want money for now at this time? And then the next thing I remember is the thud to the right side of my head. And that just ricocheted me over the other side of the bed and onto the floor. And then I just remember thud, thud, um, his foot. And I felt he had shoes on. I could feel everything, you know. And I remember saying in the most normal voice, what are you doing that for? And then I must have lost consciousness or... Because the next thing I remember is being slumped over the side of the bed and coming round, like leaning over the side of the bed, looking down at my hands, seeing the blood everywhere. The back of my left hand was completely in a mess. And I looked over the bed and Jason was sitting the other side up by the pillows and he was chopping at his wrist with a meat cleaver saying, we're going together, babe. And I just thought, oh, my God, he's going to kill me. I I have to get out of here. And I was like, I'm not going anywhere. I've got two children. <laughs> and my the white cotton sheets were just re- – there was blood all over them. And now I don't know what had happened. You know, I have – the only recollections I had was the thuds to my head. But the sheets were red. And I so I thought, I'm going to have to get, get out of here. So I thought, if I go down – to the landline I'll be able to press 999 and then the police will um will come because they'll see that I've called the police before um I said I, I well I went down the stairs and then um walked into the lounge to get the mobile phone picked the phone off the cradle and pressed 999 that call never connected but in the police records there's blood on the phone that obviously corroborates what I'm saying um, but that it never it never connected with the police. Jason then walked in 
and said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I got disorientated. I'm getting a drink of water. And he walked me back up the stairs to the loft. And then that's when I was pleading for my life. And I was um, saying, I'm dying, Jason. Please call me an ambulance. I'm dying. I'm dying. And there's a 13-minute uh, transcript, 13-minute call, 999 call, where I'm in the background pleading for my life and the operator's asking him questions. Because uh, I, I now have the transcript of the of the call. And she's asking him questions about... You know, where is Zoe? She sounds quite far away. Are you next to her? You said you were next to her. Can't really hear her. Is she, is she okay? Where's the blood? Can you stop the blood? Can you get a towel? And then he's... Um, a lot of it's incoherent. Um, and he said that we'd had a fight with knives. Um, and then the next thing I remember is... Uh, um, the people coming in saying, Zoe, Zoe. Now, he'd, the operator had asked him to unlock the door. So he'd gone and unlocked the front door. However, when they came in the house, he was lying on the floor, seemingly half-conscious with his eyes rolling in his head. Um, and then so I he's was... trying to make it look like it's half a dozen of one, half a dozen of the other, like right at the scene of the mm. crime and even on the phone call. And then he did say when the the ambulance, the police came in and said, who's, who's done this to you, Zoe? And I said, he did it in the loft. And then Jason said, I'm sorry. And then I was stretched out and taken in an ambulance to the local A&E. I then remember being in A&E and hearing Jason shouting in the next bay. So they'd actually brought him to the same A&E department and he was in the vicinity of me because I could hear him. Which is just shocking. I mean, it just shows there was no communication at the scene from the paramedics then to the hospital staff and you should not be hearing his voice when you're meant to be in a place of safety mm -hmm. and they're trying to save your life I, I can't even imagine how that must have felt horrific yeah hideous so yeah I mean I had many injuries so I had a bleed on the brain my face was completely disfigured and stamped all over um broken nose in two places, stab wound to my neck, which was a millimetre from my jugular. Had that hit, I'd have only had four minutes to live. Slash wounds to my chin, uh, my torso, broken right arm, which was snapped. My left hand, the, the stab wound had, the knife had almost gone through to my palm because my palm was completely bruised. It hadn't quite pierced the skin, but my palm was bruised from the knife going through the back of my hand. My tendons were severed, so they had to be operated on. Um, and slash wounds. I lost two pints of blood as well. Horrific. I mean, you were fighting for your life. It sounds yeah. like you had a lot of defensive wounds. You're putting your, your arms up and your hands up to try and protect your face. If he's raining blows and just the description of your injuries, it sounds like you put up quite a fight for your life. And I, I remember when we first met, you looking me dead in the eye 
and telling me about that attack. And you said he was not going to take me on that night. He was not going to take me from my children. And you Mm -hmm. were so resolute. I understood what a survivor and a fighter you were because this was an ordeal. I mean, eight hours and the, the injuries uh, were significant. You were Mm -hmm. fighting for your life in hospital and your father took a picture and we've stood at conferences and you've put that up and people have just gasped seeing what he did to you. Yeah. Yeah. And just, you know, after that, I remember, I remember being on the ward and I was just like a, an empty shell and every sound I was so jumpy But just horrified that I just I couldn't believe that he'd done that to me, you know. Even though all of the things that had happened, I never thought he would hurt me like that. I didn't think he would do that to me. But then all the behaviour you've described—I mean, none of it has been rational in any sense. I.e., you know, when you meet up with him and you're trying to risk manage the situation, he doesn't leave the house. He's constantly mm. pushing boundaries. He wants uh-huh. to then stay you're then saying you want to go to bed you go to bed he wakes you up asking for money i mean in what world is any of that okay but in his mind all of that is fine and justifiable and just to start raining blows down on you Mm. and you're trying to make sense of what's going on Mm. i mean none of it makes any sense and and most people at certain points don't think that it's going to turn physical or that the worst thing will happen Mm-hmm. But we're not talking about rational decisions being made other than what I would say is his decisions. He did call 999 and then he makes clear choices from that point out that he claims the narrative Well, you're incoherent and you're not well enough to say what really happened. Although what you did say was he did it in the loft, which is first disclosure. But he's mm. trying to say, well, we both kind of attacked each other and he's trying mm. to act his, like he's injured too. And it sounds to me like he was overacting his mm. injuries, that they were superficial injuries to his hands and his arms. But he's already got a story straight. Mm-hmm. He's been here before. He knows he has to say something. Mm-hmm. You, you're just fighting, reacting, trying to make sense of a situation and trying to fight for your life where he already has a coherent narrative prepared that tells me everything about him about his levels of manipulation and deception and that continued all the way through to court so fortunately i mean they did save your life you did recover the recovery time well that was impacted by your ex now trying to get custody of sophia who saw this as an opportunity while she were incapacitated to serve you with family court papers so when i had when I was in hospital looking the way that I was, he then actually turned up with a bunch of flowers, managed to get into my wardroom and serve me with court papers for custody with just a load of lies in them. But he was able to use that opportunity, that attack, to paint me as a different person and managed to get an ex-party hearing in court, which meant that I wasn't there to defend myself. And he was given interim residency of Sophia which was which just unbelievable like the worst thing ever to be branded a bad mother when you are not one in any way shape or form you know that and then to go th- that whole process of family court was 
I said all the way along I'd rather be attacked again than to go through that because it's the most you are in the family court you are a criminal you're treated like you've done something wrong you're guilty until proven innocent whereas in the criminal court I was dealt with you know I had special measures where they had a screen around me they I had a separate waiting area so I wasn't wasn't going to bump into him or his, his family when the court case was going on but in family court none of that was in place and I was just there being taunted that my daughter was going to be taken away and her dad was moving to Dubai so he put in applications to get her passport off me applications you know and I I was in hospital for two weeks but the I should have been in hospital longer but because I got served with those papers the court case was in two weeks time and I just said get my laptop and I was typing uh, typed a letter with bandaged hands to the judge you know this isn't a man that's doing this is an opportunist you know he's doing this uh, uh, you know ask why he's never done this before and he got interim custody and I turned up thinking that I would walk in the courtroom they'll have done their checks and you know I'll get Sophia back and I didn't they basically said you can because we were both litigants in person so we both didn't have legal representation and the judge just said uh sophia stays with dad mum can see her tuesday overnight and drop to school and five hours on saturday and this is my four-year-old daughter um no i what no i'm jumping back in here it's a lot to take in i know Zoe survives and is then having to fight for her daughter in family court. It's utterly outrageous. And more on that in the final episode next week. And just to contextualise what you've been hearing, there were sadly so many red flags and high risk factors in Zoe's case, starting with separation. People always said, Certainly when I started my analysis and research, well, if only the victim would leave, as if that would be the end to it. And what I kept seeing through my analysis is actually when someone leaves a relationship or ends it, when there is rejection with finality, that's when things are most likely to escalate. In fact, in the femicides I analysed and reviewed, 75% of those murders happened post-separation. So separation, escalation, when there's a threat to harm and a threat to kill, with isolation, coercive control, stalking, financial abuse, not taking no for an answer, refusing to acknowledge boundaries and the inability to take another person's perspective into consideration, and the victim, Zoe in this case, her heightened fear, and the perpetrator's Smith's suicidal ideation, threatening to harm himself, which can also manifest in homicidal actions, which it did in this case. And like I said, finality, this for me is a big one, and it's one that's often missed. So with Zoe's case, we had separation, and there was coercive control prior. Now, when there's coercive control prior, this is when escalation happens and stalking most often begins, as it did in Zoe's case. Stalking is about fixation and obsession. And in Zoe's case, we had Smith calling and messaging repeatedly, the turning up unannounced, the unpredictability, and the war of attrition, as I call it, 
the wearing down of someone. And so for a victim like Zoe, it feels easier to take them back or to meet them and to try and manage them and their behaviour. And what we were hearing about was Smith's male entitlement and male privilege and the gaslighting, the love bombing, the charm offensive. And as I always say, charms disarms and it's often used as a manipulator. And then in this case, the rigid thinking and the physical abuse. Now, these are all risk factors and many of which are high risk factors. They're warning signs of serious harm and femicide. And unfortunately, in Zoe's case, just when you think, or when she thought it couldn't get any worse, it does. So join me back in the intelligence cell next week to find out what happened. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Harfoga Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrude. <laughs>